Thanks. I'd like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church this morning. I remember to turn on my microphone. We do have microphones here, if you were uh, wondering about that, but just kidding. I get to do it every week. I'm a little bit more used to it. So, we're glad that you're here, and I want you to think of a moment right now, a moment in your life, where you've been caught red-handed. Doing something. Could be anything. For me, when I think of times that I've been caught red-handed, one of the times that sticks out is when I was in college, and late one night, I decided that I wanted to turn left on a red arrow. There was nobody around. I surveyed my surroundings. I'd been sitting there for like three minutes, and the light wouldn't change. There was one set of headlights way off in the distance, nowhere close. And so I figured, you know what? I'm not going to hurt anybody. I'm not doing anything wrong, really. I'll just take a left. No one will be hurt at all. Well, that one set of headlights way off in the distance, you guessed it, was a police officer. So I got pulled over. Another story I heard is from one of my college professors. He received a paper, and it was clearly plagiarized, just obviously plagiarized. And so he decided that he was going to address it the next day. So the next day he went to class, and he stood up before the class and said, All right, I know one of you turned in a plagiarized paper. You know who you are. Come see me after class. After class was over, ten students came to his office. They got caught red-handed, and only one of them, so many of them could have gotten away with it, but they didn't. Now, the thing is that we all know that there are consequences when we get caught red-handed doing just about anything. When I got pulled over, I got a ticket from the police officer. When those students turned themselves into the professor, they probably got in trouble, too. We all make mistakes. We all do things that we're not supposed to do, and we've all probably been caught red-handed before. And I think all of us, if we're really honest, would probably admit that when that happens, we don't always feel bad about the thing we did wrong. We feel bad about the fact that we got caught. We feel bad about the fact that we're going to face consequences of some type. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. This is a story that if you've been in church for long or even if you've never been in church before, you've probably heard some idea of this story in the Garden of Eden. We're going to look at two people who got caught red-handed, what it is they did wrong, the consequences that they had to face, and the confrontation they had with God. And these consequences that Adam and Eve end up bringing upon themselves and end up bringing upon creation, these consequences don't just affect them. These consequences affect you and they affect me to this very day. Now, this is the first week of a new sermon series called Come to the Table. That's the title that we're going with. And we're going to be looking at some of the most important themes in all of Scripture that have to do with a meal, that somehow have to do with a lunch or a dinner or a breakfast or a feast or something like that. And while everyone's experience is different, some of my most vivid memories and some of the most important events in my life have to do with a meal. I remember when I was a little kid and my grandmother would make breakfast on Christmas morning or other holidays, and she'd always say, Benjamin, eat that last piece of sausage. Benjamin, eat that last piece of bacon. Eat those eggs. And I did not want to eat that food, but I was forced to eat that food by my grandma. And for some reason, that sticks out to me. I still remember that like it was yesterday. 
I remember when I was a little kid and my family was going through a really difficult time. And so my mom let me play hooky one day from school and my uncle Roy took me to Sonic. And I thought it was the coolest thing in the world that I got to eat Sonic while all my other friends were in school. Might seem insignificant at the time and it might not seem that meaningful to you, but I look back at that and that means a lot to me. I remember that like it was yesterday. When I was in college, my dad and I, for four years, met once a week for lunch at Skyline Chili in downtown Cincinnati. And we talked about life, we talked about church, we talked about all kinds of things. And I still treasure those conversations. When our memories have to do with a meal, they're often more vivid than some of the other memories that we have. And some of the events that happened around a table can often be extremely important in our lives. And the same can be said of Scripture. Some of the most important things in the Bible have to do with a meal. Some of those things are good, and some of those things are bad. So with that, open up with me to Genesis chapter 3. That's where we're going to be today. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's going to be on page 2 of our Bibles. And if you don't own a Bible, grab one from the welcome desk before you leave today. But before we get into our Genesis passage this morning, let's pray together, and then we'll get started. Father, we're grateful that we get to come into your house this morning, that we get to have the privilege of reading your word, of praising you with our voices, of praying, of taking communion, of just being in a church family, God. And I pray that we won't ever take that privilege and that honor for granted. And God, I pray that as we read this morning about the meal in Genesis 3, and as we think about all the important events in our lives that so often are surrounded by meals or have to do with meals, I pray that the meal we have today will be memorable after church. I pray that the fellowship we have will be joyful, that relationships will continue to grow, that people will be able to catch up. God, just be with that meal and be with us this morning as we read this story. Speak to us in ways that maybe you haven't spoken to us before. God, we know that your word is powerful, and I pray that as we read it, that it will have a powerful impact on us, whether we know you, whether we don't know you, whether we've been following you for a long time or whether we just started following you yesterday. God, let your word do whatever it is that needs to be done in our hearts and in our minds this morning. We love you. We praise you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So Genesis chapter 3, if you know your numbers, Genesis 1 and 2 come before it. And it's important that we talk about Genesis 1 and 2 because that's kind of setting the stage for Genesis 3. With Genesis 1 and 2, God creates everything. God speaks everything into existence. Nothing exists apart from God's will, apart from God's power, apart from God's role as creator. So God creates this world of order, this world of harmony, this world of goodness. He steps back and he looks at all that he does. He looks at the work of his hands and he says, this is good. This is good. This is good. And at one point he says, this is all very good. And then he rests. So he forms the world and then he fills it with all kinds of stuff. He fills it with animals and birds and fish and trees and all types of vegetation. And the world is finished. But then God's not done yet. God creates a man, a man who is different from all the other animals. He is qualitatively different because he is created in God's image. He's the only thing that exists that can make 
that claim that he is created in the image of the creator himself. After some time, man discovers that he gets a little bit lonely. So God decides that he's going to give the man a partner. And so he creates from the man a woman, knowing that the man needs company, that he'll be more productive and more happy with a woman there. And then he gives them the command, Adam and Eve together, to be fruitful and multiply, to enjoy one another, to enjoy creation, to tend all of creation, and to be his servants and to be his image bearers in the new world that he has brought out of nothing. But there is one thing that God says that's pretty important, and that's in chapter 2, verse 16. We read there, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay, so there's one big caveat here. There's one rule. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There are all tons of other trees around here. There are every fruit you can imagine. You're not going to go hungry, Adam and Eve. Just don't eat from that one tree. That is the one ground rule. Okay. Expectations are set. The rule is pretty understandable. There's no gray areas there. You'd think that Adam and Eve would get it. And everything's going great so far. Adam and Eve are flourishing. Creation is flourishing. They have a great relationship with one another. They have a great relationship with God. The ground rules are set. What could possibly go wrong from this point forward? Well, pick up in Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the tree fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So everything seems to be working so far, but then the serpent enters the picture. Well, if you've heard the Adam and Eve Genesis story before, you probably assume, well, the serpent is Satan. But the truth is that Genesis does not explicitly say that. It's only the serpent. So where do we get this belief that the serpent is Satan? Well, that actually comes later in Scripture. Passages like Revelation, where John would say that Satan is that ancient serpent. That's where we get the belief that this is not just some magical talking snake. This really is the embodiment of Satan himself, speaking to Adam and speaking to Eve. But specifically, he confronts Eve. And as he confronts Eve, he does two big things. The first thing that he does is he exaggerates God's command. Did you notice what Satan said? Satan said, now, Eve, did God really say you can't eat from any tree of the garden? And the truth is that no, God did not say that. God gave them plenty of trees to eat from. Why would Satan exaggerate the command that God had given? Well, he's trying to vilify God. He's trying to make God look a little bit worse. He's trying to make God look oppressive 
and limiting and angry and withholding? Well, Eve responds back. And she, too, exaggerates. She says, well, Satan, here's the thing. God told us that we could eat from some trees, but we can't eat from that tree and we can't touch it either. Again, God never said anything about touching it, at least that we know of. Eve seems to be exaggerating back to Satan. But nonetheless, even though she's exaggerating, it seems as though she's going to stand her ground. It seems as though she's going to reject the temptation. She's going to stick to her guns and she's going to obey God. Well, Satan has to turn to plan B. If exaggerating doesn't work, then he's going to do something else. He's going to appeal to Eve's pride. Eve, he's just trying to hold you down. Think of what you could be if he wasn't constantly putting these limitations on you. Eve, I bet he thinks you're a threat. And that's why he's trying to withhold wisdom and power from you. And he wants to hog it all for himself. Are you really going to let him get away with that? Are you really going to let him oppress you the way that he is? Well, Eve faces a difficult decision. You know, it'd be really helpful if she had someone there to help her make this decision, to maybe hold her accountable, to encourage her to remember God's command. What decision is she going to make? Look at verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So apparently Eve falls. She takes the bait she gives in to Satan's temptation. And it turns out that Adam actually was there. He was there with her. He saw this happening. He saw the conversation taking place. And yet, for some reason, Adam didn't say anything. He didn't speak up. He didn't hold her accountable. He didn't try to somehow bail her out of this horrible situation that she found herself in. And she gave in to pride. You know, sometimes we too often give in to pride. When our pride is at stake, disobedience becomes a little bit easier. It becomes a little bit more okay to abandon the commands of God if our pride is at stake. Okay, interesting little commonality there. But anyway, Eve takes the first bite. Adam watches it happen. He participates in it as well. This isn't so much a, well, who ate from the fruit first? Who should we blame? Who's really guilty here? They're both guilty. In the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Adam falls because of Eve. Eve falls because of Adam. The two are one. It's not about who ate first. It's not about who was tempted. Both of them fell. Both of them sinned. Both of them participated in this temptation of Satan appealing to their pride. Well, what happens next? Not much. The sky doesn't fall. The earth doesn't shake. Adam and Eve don't instantly choke and die from eating this fruit the way God seemed to threaten that they would. Maybe God's warnings were hollow. Maybe God really was just trying to scare them. Maybe God really was just trying to oppress them. And turns out Satan was right. Nothing happens. Well, pick back up in verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, 
and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So one of the few things that does happen, even though the sky doesn't fall, even though the earth doesn't shake, even though they don't choke and die, they do notice something, something they'd never noticed before. They notice that they're naked. Before, they never thought much of it. That's just how they were created. That's all they knew. They didn't think at all about that kind of thing. But they look down and realize that something is different. And so they decide that they need to cover themselves. Might not seem like an earth-shaking change for them to realize that they're naked. But there's more to it than just that. There's a loss of innocence that's happening here. There's shame that Adam and Eve had never felt before. Adam and Eve have this perceived need to cover themselves and cover their nakedness. It's almost as if they need to get rid of the reminder of their wrongdoing. When we disobey, how often do we feel as though we need to cover ourselves? We do something wrong, and then we immediately regret it, and we think, you know what? I need to make sure that I get this covered. I need to make sure that I get this under control. I need to make sure that I'm not reminded of what I did wrong, and I need to make sure that I can't see what I did wrong, and people around me can't see what I did wrong, so I'm just going to cover myself. Hmm. Another interesting parallel there. Look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? So Adam and Eve cover themselves. They're trying to cover their disobedience, and then they hear a noise, and that's when they start getting a little bit worried, because all of a sudden, they know that they're about to have to answer for what has happened. They're about to have to face God and be honest about their disobedience. So they hide themselves in the bushes. Maybe they think that God won't see them. Maybe God will forget that he created them and overlook them and they can just spend the rest of their lives hiding behind bushes, hoping that God never sees them and hoping that they never have to fess up for what has happened. Well, God does know where they are. God asks, where are you? God knows where they are. Adam responds, well, God, I hid because I was naked. Really? Is that the real reason why you hid or is there something deeper that's happening here. God asks, did you eat from the forbidden tree? God knows they did. And yet they're hiding themselves. Recently, when Javen does something that he's not supposed to do, will say his name in a certain tone and at a certain volume. And when that happens, he buries his face in the closest thing he can find. Whether it's a cushion, whether it's a couch, he pretends he can't hear us, something. But that's not just a toddler thing. Adam and Eve do it too. They know they're in trouble. And so they hide themselves. And it's not just a toddler thing in this age either. How often do we, when we disobey, try to hide ourselves? Try to bury our faces in a pillow. Try to hide behind a bush, hoping that we never actually have to answer for what has happened. When the truth is that we were created by a God who knows everything. 
And yet we still try to hide like Adam and Eve. Look at verses 12 and 13, finishing up our main passage. The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So we've seen Adam and Eve try to get out of this whole mess that they've created. First, they try to cover their nakedness and hope that that will take care of things. Then they try to hide behind bushes and hope that God won't notice them, that they won't have to answer for what has happened. And when those two things don't work, this is the last option they have. The last ditch effort to clean things up. They shift blame. Adam blames Eve. The first fight between a married couple. This is the part where Eve's probably kicking Adam in the shin behind the bushes. And it sounds kind of funny, but when you really think about it, that's a big deal. Because up to this point, their relationship had been one of harmony. Their relationship had been one that was perfect. But now all of a sudden, Adam's not hesitating to throw his wife under the bus. To shift the blame on her. Harmony has been disrupted. Something is different between Adam and Eve's relationship between Adam and Eve's relationship with God. Eve blames the serpent. Adam blames her. She says, you know, God, I was a victim. I was deceived. It's not my fault. And that's somewhat true. She was deceived. But the point is that neither one takes responsibility for what's happened. Neither one owns up to their disobedience. They try to find ways to justify themselves, to prove that they really can't be blamed For what has happened. How often do we try to shift blame in disobedience? When we're caught red handed, when we do something wrong, we try to find any excuse we can to prove that it really wasn't our fault. And sometimes something may not always be just our fault alone. Sometimes things might not be black and white, but at the same time, we're a lot like Adam and Eve. We try to cover ourselves. We try to hide. We shift blame when disobedience comes. Look at the consequences in the following verses. The serpent, his consequence is humiliation. He's told that he will have to crawl on the ground for the rest of his days, that he'll eat dust. There's this submission and humiliation that happens. The woman is told that her consequences will be pain and suffering, especially during childbirth. The man is told that this work of tending creation that was once a joy for you, now it's going to be toil. Now it's going to be hard work. But it was never intended to be like that in the first place. And while all those consequences are serious, the really severe consequences for Adam and Eve, it's more than that. It's more than just pain. It's more than just hard work. They face death. One day they will die. Time will catch up with them. Things will be different. Their bodies will fail. They can't avoid it. God's promise wasn't hollow after all, even if the immediate effects aren't felt right away. Death will come. 
But then more than that, there's more than just physical death. Adam and Eve are expelled from God's presence. They're expelled from the garden. God kicks them out of the garden that he had created for them and he had created for himself. They head east and they are not allowed to come back into the garden. The gate is shut. A flaming sword is put in front of it. Those are the real consequences. Separation from God. Physical death. Spiritual death. You know, the Adam and Eve story, it's a sad yet classic story, and it has a pattern. God creates, man rebels, God punishes. You feel bad for Adam and Eve, don't you? They made a mistake, and now they have to suffer the consequences that come as a result. But did you notice the theme? You and I are sometimes more like Adam and Eve than we like to admit. It could be said that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Excuse my pun. It kind of runs in our family, doesn't it? It kind of runs in our blood. This tendency to disobey, this tendency for rebellion. That's a sad state of affairs to be in, knowing that we're so much like Adam and Eve. But the good news is that the story doesn't end simply with God punishes. Because even in Genesis 3, even as these consequences are being read to Adam and Eve, there's this tiny sliver of hope. There's this tiny glimpse of light that we read in Genesis 3, 15. Speaking to the serpent, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So even though we are so much like Adam and Eve, even though we have so much in common with them, we can find hope even in the midst of this tragic, horrible meal. This meal where sin enters the world brings a curse. But even in the midst of this meal, God gives a promise. God says that one of Eve's offspring, he will bruise Satan's head. The story's not done yet. And that person would be Jesus. Jesus, fully God and fully human, would later come. That he would bruise Satan's head, and Satan would bruise his heel. It wouldn't be easy. Jesus would suffer, and Jesus would die, and Jesus would be tortured. But the story isn't over. That's the important message to get. Sin brings a curse, but God gives a promise, and our hope comes in the form of Jesus. And in the same way that we're so much like Adam and Eve, Jesus is really the opposite of Adam and Eve. When Jesus starts his ministry, he faces temptation from Satan, temptation for power, temptation to eat when he's hungry, temptation to test God by throwing himself off the temple. And where Adam and Eve give in to temptation, where you and I give in to temptation, Jesus doesn't. At the end of his ministry, Jesus is tempted in the Garden of Gethsemane, maybe not by Satan directly, but he's tempted by his own humanity. He's tempted by his own desire for self-preservation. He prays, God, if I really don't have to go on the cross, that'd be great if I didn't have to. But it becomes clear that, yes, Jesus, you will go to the cross. This is why I sent you. And so even though Jesus is tempted to give up that mission, even though he's tempted to save his own skin, 
Jesus clearly wants to obey God more than anything else. Jesus desires to obey his father, obey the one who sent him more than his own desire for self-preservation, more than his own pride, because Jesus is fully God just as much as he's fully human. And he is perfect. Pride is not an issue with Jesus. Self-preservation is not an issue with Jesus. Temptation isn't an issue with Jesus. Because the one thing that he desires more than anything else is to please the one who sent him. He's different from Adam and Eve. And he's different from you and me. And that gives us hope. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 18, we read in that passage, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Look at Hebrews four fifteen and 16. For you do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Where we fail, where Adam and Eve fail, Jesus succeeds. And because of that, people like us who are so much like Adam and Eve, we can find hope because sin, it brings a curse, but God gives a promise. And the story doesn't end in Genesis 3. That sliver of hope, that tiny glimpse of light, it will come to fruition in the person and work of Jesus. In his cross and in his resurrection, in taking our sin upon himself, that hope will be truly seen. And the story will be written. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 17, the last passage we're going to look at this morning. Paul writes there, after comparing Adam to someone who brought death into all of creation and brought death into all people. Look at verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The curse doesn't have the last say. Death, it will be defeated. Separation that Adam and Eve experience when they're kicked out of the garden and that you and I experience because of our own sin, that separation won't last forever. Why? Because God gave a promise. And that promise is seen in Jesus. This is a tragic, tragic meal. But it's not the last meal. And it's not how the story ends. And because this is not how the story ends, because of what Christ has done, we can approach the throne of God with confidence, knowing that God's grace abounds, that God's mercy abounds, because God keeps that promise of Genesis 3:15. That tiny glimpse of hope, that tiny light shining through tragedy, that light is Jesus. Let's pray this morning. Father, we're grateful. We read these stories. We think we know them. We think they're so familiar. We see them in children's books. We see them 
parodies of them all over the place, and we think we know them really, really well, but God, I pray that stories like this will never lose their power. I pray that passages like Genesis 3.15 will always cause us to step back in awe and in amazement, just totally in awe of what you're doing in the world and what you've done for us through your son, Jesus. God, I pray that as we wrestle with temptation, which we will, as we give in to temptation sometimes, which we will, as we give in to temptation sometimes, not even putting up quite as much of a fight as we like to think we did, which we will, we can find grace in the fact that your son didn't give in to temptation. That your son lived the perfect life that we could not live. That your son sacrificed himself for me and for all of us. God, I pray that We'll never take that for granted. God, we love you. We praise you. And we're thankful that even today you're still writing a story. That Jesus will return. That we will ultimately be reunited with you. Not because of our righteousness, not because of anything that we've done, but because of what you've done. We love you. We praise you. We honor you. We ask these things. In Christ's name, amen.